Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode number 49. I am so glad you're here. If you're new, welcome to the show. Please explore some previous episodes. If you just got here, there's 48 of them. Pretty good. My guest today is Dutch composer, creator, and all-round vibrant human being channeling the light of the universe, Merlein Thvalpoffen. You can find him on Twitter at Merlin 12H, M-E-R-L-I-J-N, the number 12, the letter H. Yes, his name is Merlin. Deal with it. <laughs> More about that in a moment. I'm in Amsterdam. Yes. So if there's noises uh, of uh, people, I, it's because this is one of the highest density populated uh, cities on the planet. So uh, my neighbors are either hammering pictures into the wall or uh, creating an incredible piece of art out of a giant block of granite next door. I don't know, but that's what's happening in the, in the other room. Um, thanks to everybody that's put in a question for the first anniversary show, which is only a few weeks away. You can send me your questions via email. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's my address. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Also, I'd love to hear your voice on my show. Go to osherginsberg.com. Click on the right-hand side there. Leave me a voice message. I really want to have your voice on the show. I'm getting some great questions through already. Some great industry questions. Um, a couple of folks who work in radio are sending me questions through. I really appreciate that. Um, also, some great personal questions as well. I've got an hour of show to fill, so don't be shy. I need more questions. Give them to me. If you're able to this week, could I ask if it's for you? Could you please tweet out a link to the show? Or perhaps retweet or share or whatever this post on Facebook 
it's how I get uh, the word out about the show. It's the only marketing I do. So, so thank you. I am in Amsterdam. As I mentioned, we've finished principal photography on the second season of The Bachelor. Uh, thank you, everybody that made the first season such a success. So we do have a second season. And thank you to everybody that's making the second season even bigger than the first season. It's really, really exceptional. And we're all super thrilled. We've made a great show and you're going to love it. Uh, but I'm back here in Amsterdam. I'm at school, which I enjoy thoroughly. I, I'm... Finally over my splendor and the grass flew. My God. Um, but I got back on my road bike yesterday, which was an enormous joy after a solid month of coughing stuff up and feeling pretty weak. Um, I'm back on the road and grateful to be clocking up some miles in this country that is the most bicycle-friendly place on the planet. There's something like 40,000 Ks of bike paths here. It's nuts. It was, it was really tough leaving Australia this time, I've got to admit. It was really tough. I was there longer than usual for this second season of Bachelor. Um, I just loved being near my friends and family. That stasis of having poker nights every Wednesday, visiting my friends across the street, seeing my buddy Luke for Scrabble once every week or so. Like, I didn't see these as therapeutic before, but I've come to see these sort of things as therapeutic. When I'm not doing well, I tend to isolate, which is a false solution because I'm agitated to be around people when I'm not doing well, but being around people is exactly what makes me feel better. And I'd really underestimated the therapeutic benefits of having a social life and having regular social engagements. Now, this is going to sound crazy to many people listening, but I've had to start a new thing. I've, I got taught by a really interesting guy by the name of Simon Reynolds that if you make something a, uh, a habit, uh, make a system, it becomes quite easy to do. So I, I've got a system now where I make myself see and connect with in person at least one other human being that I know every day. Now, some folks thinking will think, I do that like every hour, I do that every five minutes, but I live alone. I have a job that's seasonal. So for a part of the year, there's my neighbor. I hope he's creating something out of a block of marble. Um, so I live, I live alone. Like I was saying, I live alone. I have a job that's seasonal. So for part of the year, I work from home. And if I wanted to, I could be, I could pretty much be Columbus from Zombieland. Just not leave the house because it feels like the safe thing to do. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's the dangerous thing to do. When I don't have other people's perceptions of reality to bounce off, I can get lost in my own fears a bit. So it's good to have people around. The thing in my brain that can differentiate from a truly threatening situation and just something that's annoying is is pretty much on a hair trigger. That's kind of what's up with my head. So it's a little like, you know, when you're on the plane, I um I just keep my eye on the on the cabin crew during turbulence. All right. So if they're not panicking, then I'm cool. So that's what I do in the world. Like I look at everybody else. If they're not panicking, like the sky's falling, I'll just breathe and I'll just wait for the cortisol and adrenaline to subside and then slowly return to normal. But it's taken some practice. But um it's an interesting stress reaction. My guest and I have a great conversation about stress reactions. My guest, his name is Malayne Tvalhofen. Yes, yes. I said before, I'll say it again. His name's Merlin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Merlin. Um, he's a composer here in Amsterdam. His work focuses on pretty much the majority of his work focuses on taking music and musicians out of the concert hall and injecting this music into daily life. He has famously performed his pieces in conflict zones a number of times, often splitting his performers between two sides of a political boundary. Now, in Cyprus, he, he's done a show where he performed across the demilitarized zone between Greece and Turkey, having the musicians do call and response stuff with each other, having them, having them speak to each other for about an hour uh, 
and performing the same piece. He also did the same thing in East Jerusalem on rooftops on either side of the border separation fence. Uh, he's a very passionate man. He speaks with he speaks with such joy and flourish. You just can't help but be whisked away into the concepts that he's discussing. I know that you'll be really inspired by this story. He auditioned 10 times for the Royal Conservatory in Holland. He was rejected 10 times. Yet he pivoted spectacularly and found a way indeed to create a career in music and truly express his joy and passion to its absolute fullest. It's a really inspiring story. If you've never picked up a musical instrument, it doesn't matter. It'll relate to you. You'll understand what it is to think you wanted something so badly, but then realized that there was limitations and then pivoted. And then suddenly the things that were holding you back are now the greatest asset in the world. And that's exactly what his story does. It's super inspiring. Once you've listened to this podcast, enjoy his TED Talks. I've got the links up on the website. And you'll love just watching him talk. He's a fascinating man. Um, but please share this with anyone you know that's pushing hard to achieve in their life just with absolute relentless passion. And just the thing that I really got from this is that it's, it's okay to pivot. It's okay to realize limits. And it's okay to slightly adjust your course to a place where what you do have can be absolutely unleashed. And that's exactly what Marlene did and does. You're going to love this. Well, I'm just fascinated. It's turned out very strange, you know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just fascinated with people that um, have found a way to make their love yeah. their work. Yeah. And, you know, we may not all be authors or actors or mm -hmm. publishers or yeah. whatever, but I think there's, there's lessons that we can all learn yeah. um, from there, which yeah. is... Uh, yeah. Really interesting. So this is this is recording, which is which is yeah. good. Let me find what I put my notes uh, for you. I wrote a lot of notes for you. All right, here we are. All right, so you know how microphones work. Just get close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, yeah. Oh, good. Cheers. Nice to be back in Amsterdam. Yeah. And I think the acoustics are good here. Mm. It's, uh, it's good. It's good yeah. space. So where are we? Um. Yeah, this, in this building, I have my office, which is usually a place uh, that's a mess because all the messy stuff takes place in the office, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, so we're very close to the theater where I first met you. Yeah, yeah. That is more a coincidence. Um, and actually, uh, uh, the, the, the properties around are very expensive, but this is very affordable because right. it's more a temporarily... Uh, space as a co-working space upstairs yeah also and a lot of small initiatives artists and uh, non not-for-profits and so on uh -huh. yeah because that was like my very first night ever in amsterdam was to come i, I landed uh, sometime in the afternoon from los angeles i basically had a shower got on in a cab yes and came straight to the concert yeah, hall yeah that was so cool <laughs> to come and see one of your pieces premiere we thought yeah. we'd got there too late we came in the interval. We didn't want to miss it, and then um, and then we saw it. We were in this 
amazing room, very proper concert hall yes. with the big yes. portraits of, I remember there's the portraits of composers or philosophers yeah, like yeah, yeah, or yeah. something all over the walls. It was yeah. very, uh, very ceremonial, kind of almost like a church, you know, yeah. the way they had painted the walls. Exactly the type of spaces I used to want to escape from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll talk about that. And on stage there's the three most beautiful string players I've seen in a long time. And and then your piece started and it, I had no idea what your music was like. And then within the first, I'm not going to say bars because there were no bars, within the, first, uh, within the first 20 seconds I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like this. Good. <laughs> Already, yeah. and it was it was it was it was wonderful. And we met afterwards, and then and we go to school together here in Amsterdam. Yeah. But straight away, I was like, "Oh, you're a man after my own heart." Because when I was a kid, mm-hmm. playing with my father's record collection, yeah, other kids had Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple Indeed. and the Beatles. Yes, I had John Cage, uh, Stockhausen, Is it? Uh, Pierre Henry, John oh, really? Coltrane. <laughs> My dad had 433 on vinyl. Whoa, that is some, that's unique. Yeah. yeah that is. All you could hear was the page turning. Yeah, so that was a release on vinyl. It was released on vinyl. And the record cover was mushrooms because he was a mycologist. He was a, oh, yeah. that was his thing. He was yeah. into mushrooms. Yeah. Um, so that was the music that I was, uh, and I remember when I was 15. Anyway, we'll talk about this. But anyway, so that was the music I was yeah. into. I was into strange and odd and very different music and so straight away I was really into it. But uh, I wanted to know how old were you? How old were you when you went, when music first turned you on? Do you remember? Um, no, I, I don't remember. My, both my parents were professionally involved in music. Uh, my father was uh, creating, you know, recorders, the, yeah. the, the, the flutes. But at home, he had a workshop at home. He made like the recorder. The, yeah, the recorder. The, the instrument, the wind instrument that we all learned to play in primary school music class. Yes, except that the ones you have on primary school are from a factory. Mm-hmm. And my father... Yamaha uh, plastic cars. Exactly. And what my father made is for these few people who are uh, professional soloists on the recorder. And who have like a, a more than two thousand dollar instrument uh, to perform and to make records and so on. And he was uh, with his hands may make them one by one, a few a month like that. Out of wood, In, exactly. Yes. And was the workshop in your house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mother is a teacher of the flute, so also a lot of children came by to get lessons, and I learned that I had. To sleep and have to be in bed, but I, I stay, stay, uh, stayed awake to to watch the music lessons uh, in our living room. What was your father's workshop like? Well, that was all about um, wood and dust and uh, sometimes big noises because he has some large machines. But then when the more refine, refinery process started, he started to play them, but not so much perform, but more create just sounds uh, in order you actually have to 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 play them in order to actually to get them in shape a bit so he needed to play for hours on the instrument before a, a, a customer should touch it because if you touch it the first time it won't sound right so he was kind of <sighs> tuning it so i can't imagine you know 
you think in the factory made ones, there's such a science about where the holes should be. But if you're just making it out of a chunk of wood, yeah. you'd have to be so precise. Yeah, exactly. And uh, of course, um, it, he, he has a very, very uh, precise uh, ways to measure in a hundred, hundreds of a millimeter to make exactly the, the right. Uh, Did he make the keys as well for the bigger instruments? Or? Uh, no, no keys. It's just, uh, yeah, just holes. So I remember we had the, at school, we had yeah. the, the big ones that had their keys yeah, that yeah, would flap yeah, open yeah. like a flute. You need a, actually not a specialist for that. <laughs> so two woodwind uh, parents, yeah. how did the violin come to you? Yeah, just to have my own thing, you know? Right. Because <laughs> uh, I never felt uh, um, to be a, a pupil of my parents. Was it ever a choice or did you just go, I want to do this? Did yeah. they say, did they send you to school or did you ask for it no it wasn't it was not a choose uh, um, not a choice if i would do music or not it was more like what type of instrument would you like okay and actually my in in my neighborhood there was a boy who played a violin so i thought that was cool <laughs> and he quit it after two years and i still do it <laughs> so that, that was my next question when did you know that you would you were different i mean there's some kids who might be able to get their, you know, their A-flat arpeggios down for their fourth grade music exam, but then, oh, football or Nintendo well, or, you know, something distracts them. When did you know you were different? Um, actually, I never uh, got the feeling I had exceptional talent. Uh, even when around my 12th, 13th year, I became really passionate to and wanted to pursue a, a professional career, I started working a lot on the instrument, but I was confronted with very, very harsh reality of if you want to, to go to that uh, road of professionalism, uh, it's all about um, uh, yeah, performance. And people told me, actually, please give up because it will make you so unhappy because you'll, you'll never match these other uh, prodigies who, who are able to play when they're 10 or 12 years old already on, on such real high levels that I was never able. Really? Yeah. So um, I was uh, uh, actually myself, I enlisted for some competitions and even an audition for the uh, preparation class of the conservatory. And so my parents were not aware of that. <laughs> um, and others of my, my age were really uh, uh, taken by their parents from the one masterclass to the next competition and so on. They were really pushed by their parents. And I wanted to go myself. And my, my parents actually told me like, whoa, you, you might become very unhappy if you confront yourself with this whole uh, world of uh, competition. And so I, I experienced that world. And I f uh, fought in it. <laughs> I, I, I maintained myself always at the bottom, uh, but still wanting yeah, to do auditions and then to go to Royal Conservatory The Hague and the Conservatory in Amsterdam, uh, always trying for something that was <laughs> much higher than I could actually achieve. What made you want to keep going? I mean, most kids can get discouraged very easily. Well, um, the experience of playing in an orchestra is uh, very, uh, yeah, very has a big impact, you know. And to be in the middle of the sound, to be uh, actually part of a big 
big engine that's roaring and that's 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 working and that's going somewhere. It feels like really you you're really part of 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 a really big thing. It is. It ex- I've only played. I played double bass, and I was yeah. un- I was only the biggest orchestra. I was in you know, maybe at school camp, maybe mm-hmm. fifty people, yeah. maybe sixty. Yeah. That there is something yes. about being yeah. in that group mind. Yeah. Everyone in sync together. Exactly. It feels like you are part of the ocean and, <gasps> and part of being a wave, being a stream of sound. And that experience is is magical. And of course, also the uh, uh, to to play and to feel at some moment that your fingers are doing things that your mind isn't controlling. It's suddenly just going, you know. So there is a lot of people mentioning this whole concept of flow. Well, music can be without flow. It's all flow. So, and that is something you will experience very soon. I mean, if you start thinking of your fingers, what to do, well, it's like thinking of if you go down the stairs, you should not think because then you will fall. You should just let your feet walk down the stairs and don't be aware of it. <laughs> and the same is also the playing music. It's, um, yeah, it's playing itself in some way. What was your uh, relationship to practice? Well, um, it's a good point. Um, when I was 13, uh, a specialist tried to discourage me. He said, like, if you really want to pursue a professional career, you have to start playing and practicing three hours a day right now and not just playing nice music but scales and exercises this is like the equivalent of doing push-ups yeah it really it really it burpees like hours yeah. it's the it makes your fingers and your brain you're just drilling the yeah. patterns in yeah. there's, nothing there's nothing else creative about no. it nothing imaginative about it and instead of me just uh, getting aware that that's impossible i just started to do that and um, even when I was uh, finally admitted to a preparation class of the conservatory and I moved when I was 17 out of my village in the countryside to The Hague and to, to live on my own uh, in this whole new world um, or for the classes of the Royal Conservatory, then in the uh, staircase, I was practicing the scales um, every day at certain times of the day. Because my teacher said, like, you really have to, to, to build a whole new system, like a physical thing. So instead of practicing a few hours in a row, you have to practice um, every two hours at least 10 minutes. But I had my school, you know? So when there was a break at school and people were having lunch, I, I, I took my instrument to the staircase to find a quiet spot to do just uh, 15 minutes of these exercises. Hank, just I want to take it back one step. You've mentioned a word that is completely unfamiliar to me as far as growing up, village. <laughs> what are we talking about? Like people won't be listening. Most of the people that listen to this show listen in Australia and the UK and America. Not many villages, maybe in the UK a little bit, but not many villages, all right? People mostly live in gigantic metropolis, like yeah. millions and millions and millions. Yeah. How many people were in your village? Uh, maybe a thousand. Wow. Like that. Everyone knows everyone. Well, um, we were a bit outsiders. My parents uh, came to the countryside to escape the noise of the city. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they are were totally rooted there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And um, uh, so it was a bit of an ambivalent relationship. I love the nature. I love the, the freedom of the, the, the beauty of nature. But it was not that I had school in, in the village itself. I went to the town uh, also to find um, uh, people who also made music. Uh, and so a lot of time on my bicycle against the wind. <laughs> <laughs> With a violin on your back. Exactly, exactly. So you went to, you, you traveled to go to high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Were you, what was high school like for you? I mean, I, I can only, my experience, I went to a rugby school, so we were the musicians in the corner. Yeah, well, I was probably the only one who was uh, playing uh, classical music in serious fashion. I, I did join a few boys um, uh, in a band uh, when I was 15 or so. Um, but especially the first years, I felt alone. Mm. And that was fine. It was good. Yeah, I was just on my own. I, I had my own ambitions, my own plans. And there was a lot of noisy things around that I was trying to ignore. So as far as parties and getting distracted by drinking and smoking and girls? Um, uh, no, no, I, I'm still waiting for that <laughs> phase to come. <laughs> Maybe retirement might look that way, but for me, no. <laughs> but come on, when you left the village, I mean, you've just set up the classic boy leaves the country and arrives in the capital. You know, you've, you've left a village of a thousand. You've practiced your ass off. You've got into the preparatory school, can't come jet lagged, preparatory school for the conservatorium, which is like, I'm guessing like a kindergarten to primary school. It's the the school you go to before you go to the conservatorium. Yeah, exactly. So you've left this tiny village. You go to the Hague capital. What was that like? Um, Well, you know. You're 17. You're living at a home. Come on, man. It's like if you... If you step out of a normal teenage school life uh, where frustration and boredom and conflict are kind of always blended into fame, like the film, the movie, the musical, everything, that that feeling, because my class was made out of dancers and musicians. And we did high school stuff, you know, we had math and uh, English, German, uh, just a normal uh, classes and then uh, halfway the afternoon, the dancers went to the dance class and the musicians went to all kinds of mu- music uh, practice. So uh, school uh, didn't exist actually anymore. It started to feel like this is a life, kind of an integrated life. Because even in, in um, history, it was about art and inspiration. And so uh, I did a lot of my school work f- from that moment on out of curiosity and need instead of out of a, a plight and force. Did you, uh, so I can, I went to a music school uh, when I was 19 and the feeling of turning up every day, going from, you've gone from the one kid in your high school that's doing his own thing to suddenly being an entire class full of people doing the same thing. Yeah, and me, myself, uh, at uh, the... I felt totally like a cripple there because <laughs> the other boys in my class, well, they were well prepared already for years. And what do you mean prepared for what? Uh, like, like playing on a very high level for years. Uh-huh. And uh, um, when I was 17, 
the guys in my class, I was sure that if I would practice my whole life, I would never match the level that they had at that point. Huh. I felt like, okay, this is the reality. If I really work my ass off, I can become maybe part of some kind of professional music life, but I will never match the level that this guy, when he's 17, has today. But did, hang on a second, is this you just judging yourself or did your teacher agree with you? Um, I think that is a, sign, a science behind it. Uh, it's just the, uh, the, the whole physical thing, the, the ease in which uh, virtuoso, virtuoso musicians can play and perform. It is something that uh, if you don't have it, you can put your 10,000 uh, flying hours on top of it and you will, you will be able to play, but never to match maybe that kind of magic that these people do, this ease, this natural thing. There is really some, there is big distances between um, uh, people. Of course, if you start at six or seven years old with the proper training, uh, that, that has a big impact. Um, but also it's just your physical. Uh, it's the way your, your body is designed if you can play this violin for all these hours. And uh, a lot of people get injured and give up uh, for physical reasons. How did, it, how did it feel when you realized this? When you realized I could practice my whole life and only just be as good as these guys are today at 17? Was it, it, it like I wanted to cry just then? It was, it was heartbreaking. Um, well, a few years before that, I was even doubting if I would enter any conservatory at all. And now I was in the Royal Conservatory. Uh, so I felt uh, very proud to be a, among those uh, kids and very, very, in that sense, very comfortable. Um, even when it was a big, I mean, the, uh, this type of uh, examinations in front of a committee of six uh, people and you just have to play, uh, that is uh, the most scary thing that I can imagine. I mean, it has never been equaled. <laughs> so you come in the room and they all just look at you and you know that they already have decided just by looking at you. <laughs> and then you put your instrument to your body and before playing, you know, oh, I'm already doing things wrong. Oh. I see this in their eyes. And then your first note and you know, okay, that was not... This first note, I mean, it's all about sound, you know? And this first note, that didn't sound well. And then note for note, you feel yourself deeper, deeper, deeper in the dirt. <laughs> and actually I did 10 times uh, entrance exam and I was never uh, of, uh, officially accepted, you know? I was in a preparation class uh, on kind of a, in, a, in a context of, okay, you get the benefit of the doubt. You have creative ideas. We see that you have joy in music. You see we, you have uh, musical uh, ideas. You, you, you can't play, but let's try another year. And finally, I, I discovered composition. Actually, I wanted to be a composer maybe already. I just thought you can learn composition. I mean, you can learn to get ideas. Mm. Um, so I was hesitating to really do study composition. I thought that's for later. First, I want to, to study music. Yeah. But then in the composition department, my ideas were welcomed. <laughs> While at, at a viola player, 
they ask me, look, you want to become a professional? You know what's the profession? Playing in an orchestra. You can't play in an orchestra because uh, you have to play exactly like the other guys. It has to be a unity of the sound, you know? You cannot have your own ideas in, in an orchestra. So I actually could uh, go into an argument with them and say like, look, my picture of the profession in music is different from being just like in this orchestra, uh, which is a big machine in some way. And uh, my picture of a profession is somewhere in the middle of creating music and creating kind of connections between people and between art forms and performing and connecting different cultures. Uh, just, you know, uh, like speaking without words, but in other ways. Uh, so it sounds like when composition arrived as a path, did it feel like the sun came out? Did well, suddenly I had, there was a place for my imagination, which was always postponed as long as I was playing the violin. Because with the viola in my hand, I knew that first I need to build my technique before I can express mm -hmm. uh, something, uh, yeah, my ideas with it. And then with composition, you just have your pencil and your paper, you can write anything you want. And then I started to get these big dreams and, and plans. And even uh, just in my very early 20s, I started to organize large concerts. Huh. So would you remember the first time you composed anything? Um, well, was it when I, you were young, much younger? Yeah, yeah. I started com composing maybe when I was 11 or 12 in this kind of very, well, clumsy, self-thought uh, uh, way. And then when I was on the conservatory, I started, of course, to, to, to create pieces and I needed players. And even on the conservatory itself, the students didn't want to play my piece. And they are even asking me if I would pay them to, to do that. Because in music, everyone is busy with the repertoire, you know, the 19th and 20th big composers. That's what you want to play if you're a musician. And you have it's to- the great, This is the greatest hits. I mean, like, course, yeah. like, there's economic realities of running an orchestra. 115 people is expensive. And, <laughs> and you have to fill stream. concert halls. Yeah. And yeah. people want to hear the goddamn Four Seasons again. Exactly. <laughs> music is all about memory. I mean, yeah. I believe everybody, if you think of music, you, you know that you love music because of the memories it brings back. The first time I heard this music or the time I heard it in a great way, that's what you want to re-experience. Uh, so a lot of music is about creating again this moment of magic. I mean, painters don't need to bother about creating a Monet of a Pizan or any of the famous Van Gogh. It's just there, it's materialized. But a musician has to recreate it every time again. So 99% of the people in the conservatory and are focusing on reproduction of these old classics. And then you are there with a new idea. And no one has time for that, you know? Everyone is totally occupied with the old stuff. Yeah. So then I, I actually, I, I went to, um, uh, again, to the countryside where you have these uh, brass bands rehearsing and being really fanatic on, 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 yeah, on, on creating their music. And I actually uh, uh, went to, to talk with them and say like, look, I have a plan. 
I organize a, a bus, I organize a meal, and there is beers after. <laughs> and we'll do something. <laughs> they say, why not? Instead of that, I had to convince all, yeah, step by step, these musicians. And then I started to experiment with this type of, of groups. And they were, they were happy if I put them in, in a piece of nature or in shipyard or even uh, on, uh, on some rooftops. So I started really to, to build environments where I would love to, to experience music. Because I, I, I love places in real life, you know? Uh, the music, the concert hall for me is like a laboratory, some a place where you exclude the normal life and you kind of focus on an artificial reality. And actually, I, I, I love to bring music in the life itself. Yeah, you do talk, you've done a, te you've done a TED talk, people, I'll put a link to it on the page, uh, a fascinating TED talk uh, that you've done. And um, there's a few points that I, I did want to talk to you about, but um, you do mention that about the separation that exists between art and life. And it's only in the framing yeah. that changes the it's but it's 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 a utilitarian thing, but if I put a frame around it, now it's art. Well, I believe art doesn't exist outside of the mind of people. It's an experience. So um, you have artworks that can be objects. It can be a composition or a score or a, um, a, a sculpture or um, whatever piece of fashion. <laughs> and uh, but that's not art. If you watch it and something inside yourself, you feel it's changing certain assumptions that you have, it's opening up. Sometimes it can be confusing, but if people say, oh, it's fascinating or it's inspiring, it always means it's breaking up structures that are there inside yourself. And opening those structures, you feel an enrichment. That can be disturbing for you or it can be a great feeling, Diff total different kind of uh, ways. Art can be a terrible experience, but it can also be a, a adorable experience. But it's a change inside of the, the the patterns of observation that you have usually. It's like breaking the patterns. So art is inside the mind. It's uh, it, it's it's the, the the way people perceive the world around them can be in an open way, in an artistic way. They can experience and have an artistic experience. And sometimes an artwork can help that, can facilitate it. But a lot of time, um, the artwork itself just damages this openness because this artwork has an explanation, has a reason, has a price, has uh, fame and reputation. And then you're in the museum, it's like, oh, this is this famous piece of art from that century and it's very expensive and look how well it's done it's the technique has this 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 has all nothing to do with an artistic experience it's just an intellectual experience that at that point i was riding here on a bicycle it's amsterdam of course i rode here on a bicycle um and i came across a, a canal as you do they're everywhere and because i knew i was coming to see you i was trying to be quite present to you know there's you compose a piece as you said before, you have a piece of paper and a pencil and things that were in your brain, uh, electronical impulses flipping around your brain turn into reality. 
Uh, you put them on a piece of paper, you give them to a brass band who you've promised beer to, and then this thing that was in your mind is now real, all right? Yeah. That mind-blowing. Yeah. But then again, this bridge that I rode my bicycle over, exactly the same. It was never there. And then someone wrote on a piece of paper with a pencil, we're going to put it this long, we're yeah. going to put this many things, this many stones, this, ro- this iron. And now there's a bridge. It was once in someone's brain. Yeah. It's an imaginary thing and it has come into reality. I'm riding over this bridge and it was just like, it was so beautiful, the arc of it, the, you know, the angle of the, it was wow. just glorious, man. Yeah. And I'm looking down at the houseboats and, you know, I was just blown away. Suddenly it was like the final scene in The Matrix where all of a sudden I'm looking around going, everything here was once a figment of someone's imagination. And well, I'm, I'm seeing the inside of their brain manifested in front of me. Yeah. If you have that openness, uh, you feel also in some way connected yeah. with, with this environment. And then you're fascinated because you're open and also a whole new reality enters you, which is a fascinating well, beauty or complexity or maybe the love of these people designing this. It's in it. It's, it's uh, generations are uh, bringing their passion to you. But as soon as you see a bridge as having a function, then it all disappears and you just cross the bridge because you need to go to the other side. You disconnect yourself from actually the richness of life. And that is what happening, what's happening every day with everybody all the time, except, except of these little sparks that you just described. Because it was a moment. I mean, if you are in that state all the time, maybe people might call you enlightened, but you might not end up finding your road. You're just stop <laughs> to be amazed and overwhelmed by the beauty of everything, you know? Yeah. And so I believe it's a, it's a system that people protect themselves to these uh, perceptions they find words to describe the world around them. That must have started 100,000 years ago. And they say, okay, wait, you're not a complex phenomenon. No, you're just a cow and you are a horse and you are a friendly person and you are just a mechanic. You're just a salesman and you're actually quite sexy. And for everyone, you just have a label. And all those labels block the fascination, block block the complexity, block the, yeah, maybe the, the, the whole fact that it's impossible to really understand it, the mystery. And instead of the mystery, you just have a concept. So we live totally in, in a world of concepts. And that's very, very easy and functional. And it also leads to big tragedies because these concepts are always a simplification. So it's all, you have a lot of misconceptions <laughs> and that leads to so, such a lot of tragedies. And um, yeah, uh, I think this is a, a big challenge of our exi- existence. You've, yeah. and, and, and this sounds like, So I'm starting to understand why you like to take music out of the concert hall so much. Well, this is, of course, a retrospect. I mean, it's lovely to talk about it now. But at that point, I just felt bored myself. Mm. I felt locked in. 
I felt locked in, in into a certain crowd, certain type of people who, who, who are supposed to love contemporary music. My colleagues who always have a certain, well, they have the same speech, you know, same um, uh, professional. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The way of, of talking and um so I wanted to break out of those type of of prisons and when i was working in the real world i also learned that a masterpiece in music is not always a masterpiece in the experience of others sometimes even piece of my music was going wrong or just failed but people had a wonderful experience because i created a, a situation where people were present, were open, were uh, perceiving yeah, time and space. And in that attitude, then we might go back to the four minutes, 33 seconds of John Cage. I mean, it's like a frame, it's a window. It's not a picture that's already there. No, it's a window you can look outside. And what's outside, that, that's the world. But to have people really take that space, take that look in a fresh way, that's liberating. I should explain very quickly what 4 Minutes 33 is. It was a piece in three movements by a composer called John Cage. And it was essentially, he believed, the short version is that um, the, the sound of the world around us was music. And he was creating, as you say, a frame for people to appreciate that by sitting them down for four minutes and 33 seconds and having silence. It could be played by a piano, an orchestra, one of your father's recorders. It could be played by any instrument. Um, as long as the instrument would be silent. As long as the <laughs> instrument would be silent. And there was that frame of now we're just going to sit and listen yeah. to the sound around yeah. us. Which was, of course, very shocking that time. Yeah. And also made him famous and, uh, because it was a great concept. The concept itself became also an object of worship. You can buy the score of it and you have or to rent it. It's expensive. Um, so there is a paradox. Cage brings this type of um, like random sounds to the world of the high art. And I would love to liberate art out of that world of high art and to bring it to the world. So it's actually a whole uh, an opposite direction. Yeah. So you've, uh, 
you've described what it's like to sit in the middle of the orchestra, in the middle of this big machine, the being of the flow state. What's it like when you, because you conduct, what's it like to stand in front of this machine and have people manifest something that was in your brain into reality, interpreted through the movements of your body, through your facial expressions, through your very energy? That must... uh, I don't know if you could even put it into words. Well, um, being uh, on a desk as a uh, conductor of my own music, um, it's a battle between uh, parts of my my brain and my experience because I have something in my mind that I want and something imaginative that I hope to realize with all these people at that moment. So part of my brain is reflecting like, are we succeeding? Am I, do I come close to what I imagine? Which is very exciting when, when it's close, but it's also very troublesome when it's different. And the other part, actually, which I have to fight to also give space for that, is observing like what's actually happening. It might be different from what was my plan or what was my expectation, but what's happening in the reality, in, in the now, in this moment? And then you you get you get a sense of the attention of the whole audience and the attention of the musicians and then you can finally feel really the moment of that 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 the place in time that yeah that you are present in and that is actually very very yeah very special but you're there and you're working and you're uh like uh, operating the big machine, so it should you should keep the the steering wheel in your hands, and not not just start dreaming and observing what's happening. Although this observation can be uh, yeah is is very essential. So you're all the time back to a kind of focused state or a kind of an open state, and trying to keep different parts of your personality together. As a conductors can be on one side dictatorial and terrifying or on the other side they can be like uh, either Yudi Menuhin or who once famously conducted uh, the Royal Symphony Orchestra with his feet uh, in, a, in a handstand because he was a yoga uh, aficionado or uh, Benjamin Zander who's just this transcendent just joy flying out of him uh, I'm, sh- I'm guessing you really enjoy the rehearsal process and, and bringing everybody together. Well, um, I've never uh, felt uh, able to tell others that the score is the most important. So if, if people are playing and it's different from what I have written, I don't see a point. I just see a point in what we are, will realize together. So, because very often the score is just like a shadow of your imagination and it's very hard to make, it's like, a, like the plan of a, of a building, an architect has to make just on a, on a flat surface some kind of plan for finally a big building. And so the score is a tool, people have it in front of them, people play it, but it's just the start of a process. And uh, I know a lot of composers focusing on making the score perfect and then making sure the musicians play exactly how it's written. Uh, that's not the way I do it. I always doubt my score because it's not the source of my inspiration. No, it's just a reflection of it. 
um, and very crippled one. Because the language we use, notating the music, is based on the system from centuries ago. So how can you make new music just using this very, very old way of writing it down? That, that feels, uh, it's, it's a crazy uh, procedure. And, um, but composers have found ways to get around this with graphic notation and they, they write all over the score. Yeah. Sometimes the score is just geometric shapes on the stave. Yeah, it's all very Play a triangle. And, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's all... It, it's, it's By triangle, I mean, like, they'll draw a triangle on the stave and yeah. say, play what you think that sounds like. Yeah, but it, it feels like a panic mm -hmm. of somebody who has something in their mind. It's unable to express it in words. You never can play an orchestra all by yourself. So you have to find a way to have that that impression, this artistic experience that, that you imagine on paper in some way. And that's a process that is very painful and uh, very frustrating. And so I, uh, when I conduct, I actually hope that things happen. And I ask the musicians, this is good, do it. And then they say, no, sorry, it was a mistake. I say, no, it's not a mistake, it's good. No, but it's not written this way. And I say, throw away these notes and remember what you just did. Because what you did is better. Um, that happens often. <laughs> Do you think you're the kind of conductor you wish you had? Um, well, of course. <laughs> but I would be confused as a player because a yeah. player knows that he has to be very humble and just play what's written down. Yeah. And if I get encouraged to be creative and if more than 100 people start doing that on the same moment... Uh, of course, uh, it's hard to control that. So some, I'm sure some players might be quite challenged by the sounds that you're asking them to make with their precious, very valuable <laughs> instruments. Well, um, I found ways, because I uh, experienced that, um, uh, that you first have to have a big reputation before musicians actually start risking uh, their um, the sound that, they are used to make, you know? They're, what they do, what they're best at, what's their profession is to make beautiful music. And if you ask them, can you make something that's not typical beautiful music, just because the, my music needs it, mm -hmm. then you have a, a big struggle with musicians sometimes. And then you first have to, to build your reputation in order for them to succumb to this project. So uh, there has been challenges, and I found a way to um, uh, to solve that without first becoming uh, like an icon um, of like have this authority that I can ask anything. Uh, no, what I do is, for example, invite two hundred children to sit among the uh, the orchestra. They have also instruments; just they cannot play at all the way these professionals can. The professionals can play the professional sound. It must sound perfect. But then the children are starting to play with them. And the whole perfect sound start to get blurry and start to get noisy, chaotic. And I start enjoying. <laughs> so it's a, the art of, of, of blending these ingredients instead of trying to, to change the ingredients. The kids must have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. Although... 
they also are used to be uh, uh, that they are in a kid zone where they always can behave like kids. But with me, they are in the real art zone and I want to make an artistic statement with them. It's not a children's event, you know? So we don't play a children's tune. We play a real composition. And I respect and I love and I, I'm dependent of the input of the children. Um, I just can't uh, make them the center of, of the project. No, it's about the music. Yeah. That is confusing because usually the kids' world is very clearly separated from grown-ups' world. And I love to blend that. Yes. And actually, you find a lot of kids who are so happy that they can be part of a real thing. That they, I mean, in school, they can be the star of their musical, but now they have maybe a small role, but the audience is a real audience. And it's not just the parents who will smile and clap anyway. Well, they're filming on their iPhone. <laughs> uh, you've played, you mentioned, you know, you've played gigs in incredible places. You've, uh, you've famously done a gig in a submarine. <laughs> you've, yeah, the um, Soviet uh, yeah. thing, yeah. But you've also, you're really drawn to making music in conflict zones. What is it about conflict zones that draws you towards these places? Well, first of all, the fact that you actually can just do it and that you also just can find ways to do it safely. A conflict zone is... Uh, only by exception, a place of violence. But this exception always gets in the news. So we have the feeling that in places where people are living in, in conflict with each other, that there is violence. And, uh, but the reality, most of the time, the conflicts are there and are just kind of, they are stuck in the process and they just hate each other and nothing is moving, not, nothing is changing. And those places you can just go and just talk with people. Uh, I mean, even today when the, this, this uh, big uh, conflict in the Middle East, if you just go to Jerusalem, you see, and you go to some shops and you see Palestinians, Israelis just next by each other, uh, still the ma majority of all the time and the place, it's just continuing. But they have a big, 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 big trouble there. So if you go there, you can just do it. And music is a lovely way to go out of the frames of the usual words that are defining the conflicts. And you, you will never have a, a problem that, uh, for example, I worked in Syria before the, the trouble started there. And musicians never had a trouble with uh, being too outspoken of in some political way. Because... The, the secret police would never judge a tune if it's with or against the regime, you know? So inside music, people felt the freedom that they could express themselves, what they would not dare to do in, uh, well, in speech. In poetry, they learned to do it already for centuries. That's why the Arab world has the, the highest form of art from the Arab world is in their poetry. It's always a place where you can express erotic or critical criticism to the uh, to the government or all these things in 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 this uh, poetic uh, ways. The the gig that I first 
heard you, you know, after I saw your show, I went home and I, I figured out who you were and I was like, hang on a second, you played a concert where half of the players were on one side of the separation wall in East Jerusalem and half the players were on the other side. That kind of thing completely just blows my mind. I've, you know, I've been there, I've, I've stood there, I've yeah. stood against the separation wall, yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of time in Israel yeah. and absolutely it's yeah. a... To say it's a big, 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 big problem is probably a small way to talk about it. It's, it's, you, you mentioned, uh, and I've noticed this in the last few weeks, particularly we're recording this in the end of August in 2014, and in the last few weeks obviously there's been a lot of problems, a lot of conflict, a lot of death, it's been horrible, a lot of violence yeah. in the Middle East. And when people will try and sum up what's going on there inside a tweet, I'm like, you've got, you can't. No. You, this, no. This is like a 10,000-word essay to describe what's going on there. No, no. Um, so that you managed to do such a thing, what did it, what did it feel like when you, which, which, firstly, which side of the wall were you on when the concert began? Well, uh, the, the uh, important thing is that I did a project before in Cyprus where you have a very clear division between yeah. the Turkish and the Greek side and the United Nations keeping a buffer zone to keep a peace. It's like a demilitarized zone exactly. with, yeah. you know, fairly, you know, there's army and there's landmines and barbed wire. Yes. And it's like, you really yeah. don't want to walk across here, everybody. And at the same moment, no one's dying. Nothing is burning. Nothing is uh, um, uh, explosive. So this Cyprus thing is there already for decades. Mm -hmm. I learned that the United Nations spend a million dollars a day <laughs> keeping the buffer zone. That was so shocking for me, fighting for my income as an artist and very often needing to find a few thousand dollars to, to succeed with the project. And that is spending a million dollars a day for a conflict that everyone's forgotten about. So that's Cyprus. And I did a project there and suddenly a lot of things started moving especially in the minds of people they but it was a similar thing where you had well, one turkish and greek musicians on rooftops playing together from a distance hearing each other making question answer in a musical way and then of course cnn the, the new york times everyone was there to f report about conflict without a victim and that was a unique concept like how can the reality, which is not violent, but it is a stuck conflict. How can we reach the news? How can we reach attention? How can we make a new uh, a change? And we succeeded with that uh, 400 participants Man. in Cyprus. When I came to the West Bank and to East Jerusalem and to Israel and to Palestine, um, this whole um, border concept is already so complex mm -hmm. that I could never repeat what I did in Cyprus because this big wall is not built on what they would consider the border of 1967. 67, yeah. Because at that time, there is a green line, so there is an occupied territory and Israel. But the wall is built somewhere else for a large part. So the whole concept of what is the wall doing is part of propaganda, part of debate, 
part of a struggle? Is it for the security or is it for the land grab? That, that is part of um, uh, uh, this, this, this fixed positions that people have and with, with words fighting each other in the media, on the comments on YouTube, everywhere you see the same arguments, it's all stuck. So what I just wanted to do, to go to the people there, listen to their concerns, and they hated the wall, even not thinking of Israelis or Jews or uh, religion or uh, the, their country, whatever. It was just a big piece of concrete in their garden where they used to have their olive trees. So for them, it was an ugly thing. So with the, the children who were living there, literally in the shadow of that wall, we just made songs to show that actually it's very easy to fly over the wall when we use our sound. Well, our body is stuck here, but our sound can reach the other side very easily. And the other side, they were their former neighbors. It was not the Israelis. No, it was the other Palestinians who, were, who used to be neighbors who were now cut off each other mm. because of that insane project. So I wanted more to, to investigate the nature of that ugly thing and not to talk about enemies being people against each other. No, there is concrete against people. <laughs> so I wanted in some way to empower the, the people there to, to use music, to use imagination, to fight the concrete of that wall. So it is an easy enemy because I won't feel easy if people start fighting people. Then I'm confused. Then I'm also very sad. It's very tra tragic. But to fight a big, ugly wall in your garden, let's do that. <laughs> let's break, let's crush this thing. You've been, uh, so you mentioned Cyprus, you've been to uh, Syria, you've been to Jordan. Um, what's it like when you come home here? It's a beautiful, peaceful, free Amsterdam. What's it like? Um, well, that's maybe the, the cliche. Uh, just the, 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 the fact that people are complaining about daily stuff in a way that is even more intense than Palestinians complaining about the fact that the checkpoint is closed just because some kind of Israeli holiday so they can't reach their university, so they can't do their final exam, so they have to pay another year of... of uh, and these big problems there. If you see people complaining here about, of course, we have some rain once in a while, <laughs> or people have their own troubles, that, that makes you very confused. And in some way, people can impossible compare their own misery with the misery of others. And there is a, it's just a big, big, big problem in the, in the mind of people. If you see people on television, I mean, the fact that in Jordan, it's about 80% of the whole population that's refugee. And now recently, there was a big debate in the Dutch government. Can we allow 500 Syrian refugees in the Netherlands? Can we allow 500 without our whole country being destabilized, the whole culture vanishing? And uh, we have some Muslims here. Oh, that's just a big threat on our identity, all this type of discussion, you know? If you look at the Jordan society where the 
The towns close to Syria are doubled in inhabitants, and it's the poorest people. And suddenly the town is double. The prices to rent the space is tripled or more. I mean, that type of reality, people do it. People deal with it. People work on it. People, I spoke with Jordanians who build their own kind of shelters for refugees in, on their properties just because, I mean, in the news, you, they always film some kind of refugee camp because it's a, a very clear picture, like this is the refugee camp. Big rows of tents that go exactly, to the horizon, 80,000 people, some guy in a flak jacket telling you they haven't had clean water in three days. Well, that is a clear picture. Hmm. The fact that you can tell maybe, the story in a soundbite on the yeah, television. Yeah, it might be 10% or 5% from all refugees. The others are just everywhere, gone, taking care of their self or trying to deal with it, uh, moving to other parts of the town just to find other job for one hour to earn one dollar. <laughs> and that whole world, um, of course, uh, if you step back to your own society, your own place, I mean, I, I wish we can make a declaration in the Netherlands and say, it's done, we're, we're there, we reached some kind of, we fixed the country, the, the, our life, our system, it's, it's ready. <laughs> Instead of always like, it's not good, we have to improve, we have to change. And uh, no, this is what it is, it's never perfect. But it is, yeah. I think way. I feel the same way. I feel the same way in Australia. And I was really struck like last year when I went back there to work on The Bachelor. Um, I left America, and it's a very simple, clear line. America had a $6.50 minimum wage and no health care. I get on the plane. I land in Australia. The dollar is trading higher than the American dollar, like a dollar one, a dollar two. The minimum wage in Australia is $16.50 and there's universal health care. You turn on the radio, you open the newspaper, apparently the sky is falling. Apparently the world is ending and everyone is freaking out. Yeah. And I just thought, hang on a second, man. We live in paradise. Yeah. We have clean water. Yeah. Sure, our country has its issues. But every family has their issues. Everyone's got a little something that's rough around the edges. Yeah. But yeah. really, man. Yeah. And if you then learn how, what kind of journey we, we made as a species, I mean, for tens of thousands of years, we had to be uh, every day to take care of our survival. Mm. And we're still wired that way. We're yeah. still, if we meet someone else, there is... Uh, something in your uh, primitive brain who says he might kill you because that was a reality. It was. I mean, just a few thousand years ago and still in some places, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately today, but that is what our, our body is shouting all the time. He might kill you or kill your children or whatever. And in this way, we just walk the street, you know, being always prepared for the worst. And that's why we ensure ourselves, why we it's like an extreme mismatch between our reality and the way we are wired. It's, um, it's, quite, it's quite evident. I mean, I have, I have anxiety, which is basically that thing you've just described, being very, very overactive. Uh, and I was explaining it to someone this morning on a, on, a, on a Skype call that I wake up 
and I have this feeling that I'm I'm about to get attacked by something. And it's no more like like I have a scratch or I feel like I need to sneeze. It's just my body having a reaction. It's got nothing to do with 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 anything. And it, it, it's just, I've just, you know, how, how you mentioned that. Yeah, we walk around with this thing that kept us alive for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are the survivors. Yeah. So our uh, grand grand grandparents, they were the one who were f- uh, flying the first. They were the yeah. most scared. They were running the fast. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. So you're right. The, the, we the, inherited the most uh, risk avoiding or uh, the most Jesus, uh, right. yeah. and also the most cruel because the most cruel i mean if you uh, let your whole tribe uh, abandon it to survive yourself you are you carry the genes you know <laughs> wow you're right wow it's very disturbing i mean creativity is of course the whole other side creativity is openness is you want to investigate if uh, 50,000 years ago, if I start investigating some kind of big mammal in front of me, I would be uh, eaten. So I should not investigate. I should kill it or run for my own life. Creative minds are open. They say, no, let's give him a chance. It looks a bit like a tiger, but what? who says it's a real tiger who wants to do any harm? Let's just give it a try. All those type of mindsets are exiting the gene pool uh, very efficiently by the tiger. <laughs> so we inherited the most not creative uh, minds just judging as fast as we can. Can we kill it? Can we eat it? Or do we have to run for it? And that is how we're made. And that's a struggle because now it's destroying just our joy because <laughs> we're still stuck in that type of uh, world a bit. Do you think that we as a as humanity can transcend that? Can we find a way out? Well, the fact that uh, money is really a fuel to this survival instinct, you think you always need more in order to survive because if yeah, if you lose your job, you have the feeling you get your you die mm. and or if you don't get as much as the people around you, you also feel you're, it's, it's uh, uh, <laughs> fatal. So we are, this whole money system fuels into a kind of a survivorship thing. And uh, if we learn to, um, uh, to not, to, to very, become very aware how just money is a very easy tool, and that, um, uh, and to see the beauty of, of, of our lives. And I mean, of course, uh, we're c- capable of doing that and everyone is capable of l- teaching themselves. And a lot of people find out somewhere half their life that they actually ha- have been wasting their time on their kind of careers that are not that um, uh, promising. I mean, <laughs> just making money, you know, and spending it on stuff that people around you all also have. Uh, I believe we are at a point that, that there is a lot of people doubting this type of uh, the rat race. I mean, it, yeah, we know it. We doubt about it. But it's not a tipping point yet. Still, the whole society is focusing on, let's earn a bit more. Let's, 
let's get more revenue, let's get bigger companies that get, uh, yeah, um, let's get our economy uh, again in, in shape and, uh, and yeah, but I, I have, I see also a lot of initiatives that are focusing on, on let's measure our uh, domestic product differently and let's measure our happiness instead of uh, what we spend. Mm. Um, yeah, there, it is hard to, to, if you start searching really for that, will it this type, will it really, will we turn around? Then, I mean, you can be so pessimistic because uh, this life in abundance, it happens maybe a few generations because even my parents still had big challenges, especially their parents. So what is a few generations of safety if you compare it to these thousands of years um, where we were always having to, yeah, to focus on our survival? I learned that in the Middle Ages, it was not safe to walk across town in Amsterdam. A lot of people were carrying weapons. You could die in a, in a bit uh, in a dark alley, you know. Uh, so that was a different world. So a few generations ago. So when you you're you're a father, you have two children, little. When you look at your kids, do you see these instincts that we're talking about? Do you see this? Can I can I kill it? Can I run away? Or do you see curiosity? Well, oh well, of course. Uh, well, actually, both of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, children can be so cruel and so um, so selfish. And it's also what I learn if if you think of youth, uh, even in the twenties, the brain is not developed to have a real full uh, sense of empathy. You know, you're still focusing on getting yourself established in this society. So it takes a while, and not a lot of people will experience that in their life, but to get a sense of real safety that you can be open to others without getting killed. It's really a mindset and a lot of people don't succeed all their, uh, all their life. A lot of people say they learn things from their kids, but you strike me as a man that looks for a little more in the world. Uh, what do you learn from your kids? Oh, I mean, the fact that uh, they are open to the present, the fact that they don't worry about anything and that they're just perceiving things so directly and engaging with it so directly that is so inspiring. And the fact that, that for them, a little uh, insect is a miracle. The fact that it moves, that it can fly, that it, it, it can make sounds. And it is a miracle. I just learned, no, it's an insect. <laughs> but they don't know the word insect yet. They just experience the miracle. And that is what's so great of, having kids that you see actually, wow, they live in a world of, of miracles, but is it maybe my disturbed or uh, uh, limited mind that's actually pushing out the magic? Maybe they li live much more in a reality. So you're saying maybe as, as we get older, we shut off that yeah, ability to perceive these things as... It's yeah. fascinating and incredible. I mean, the first thing that we learn in, uh, is, is to have a, a book with very simple pictures. This is a cow, this is a sheep, this is a cat. Yeah. 
but it is paper. It's paint on paper. So child learned, look, this paint on paper, I have to relate that to the real thing. This cat who's moving, who's warm, is called the same as this kind of image on the model. And uh, so they, we push children as soon as possible in a world of concepts hmm. and models that are simplifications, that are words, that are, are concepts. We want them to learn words as fast as possible. But as soon as my boy calls it, ah, that's an insect, it's a model, it's a concept. And it's not this big magical world of mystery. So we kick out the mystery as soon as possible. That's what we call education. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, but you're absolutely right. So we've been talking for a, a while now. Um, I, I, I'm sure people, not everyone is listening as a composer, not everyone is listening um, uh, has, you know, been to a, to a conflict zone that you, you're talking about, but people might want a little taste of seeing the world a little more magically, a little taste of seeing the world with a little more fascination. What are, what are some ways that they can do that? Well, I believe art is a great way where the, uh, the world of concepts is uh, in some way postponed and where complexity can just be. And people don't need to worry about the function of something. So the bridge has not a word. It's maybe not a bridge. It's maybe just a beautiful shape. It's an artwork. Let's see, what is it? As soon as people say, oh, by the way, it's a bridge. Okay, then it's lost. So art has the space for wonder, for curiosity, for confusion. And, but you have to be very careful that you don't get all these intellectual games inside that world. And the art world itself is trying a lot to destroy the mystery. They say, no, it's a, very, it's a masterpiece because of this and this and this and this, or it's very entertaining. They, 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 uh, they promote art as being a great day trip for your family uh, with great coffee in the, in the cafe of the museum and great games for the kids. And a do. gift shop. And a gift shop. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, if you're there, you have to, in some way, to... To, to try to, to open up for this world of confusion and wonder. But I see art as a, as a tool to learn you to be open, and, but you can be open at any place, at any moment, any situation. And if you're, if you're there, then I would love to call you an artist. Maybe not an artist with the skills to make artworks, no, an artist with a direct connection with the source of imagination and inspiration. It'd be interesting to see what happens when like a society found that, like as en masse, if we all pulled away from these concepts for, I don't know, it's 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Let's find a, find a way to, you know, let's get away from these concepts for just 10 minutes. And while we're in that 10 minute space, let's just all experience the world as a different place. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how life would be different afterwards. Uh, there, would, there are so many small exercises. I mean, if I just buy something at the shop, uh, even for a few seconds, I can experience a person at the other side of the desk. I mean, the other experience is all about us, just a cashier or I, I have to pay. Thank you. Uh, have a nice day and so on. But at maybe one second, you say, oh, there's a person there. 
And at that moment, the whole concept of being just a shopkeeper is gone and there is some, something real. Mm. I mean, it can be an exercise in starting with one second if you do business with the people in front of you or the people around you if you're, if you're traveling in, uh, uh, in the subway. And, and you can extend this type of exercises with things. Mm. And then suddenly it's not a sandwich in your hand. It's like it has an interesting structure and it's made by people who designed it or worked for it or by a machine who actually put a lot of... It was a uh, farmer who harvested the spinach. Well, the like that. It goes all the way back. And it can be romantic and it can be very disturbing. It can be uh, full of poisonous uh, things, but that's also part of the mystery. Like, how the hell did we end up here? Yeah. I mean, it's reflective. But the moment of wonder before the judgment starts, that's the moment that I would uh, call maybe the essence of what artists are looking for. Whatever I can do to help you get that wonder to more people, please let me know, Merlin. Good, good. <laughs> I go for it. And lovely to team up with that. Um, thank you so much, Merlin. This has been great to sit in the basement of this wonderful building in Amsterdam. Um, this is awesome. Thank you so much. No worries, brother. Cool. I'm going to take your photo. Nice. Nice one. That was great. <laughs> That was Merlein Twelvehofen. You can find him on Twitter at M-E-R-L-I-J-N, the number 12, the letter H. Uh, that is Merlein. You'll enjoy him very much on Twitter. Let him know you heard him here. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Please, again, leave me a question for the anniversary show. I want you to be a part of that show. Send Osher email at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail osherginsberg.com please share a pod please share the links to this show with your people if it's right for you your recommendation is the most valuable marketing i could ever ever hope for so thank you so much for being here have a great week um i hope you do everything that you want to do and do it well and have fun while you do it sleep well dream of beautiful things Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 